Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and welcome here to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, our weekly look at farming, food, and our environment. Uh, here on WEAA 88.9 FM, celebrating 88 days of summer. More details at WEAA.org. And, of course, you can also hear us on Delmarva Public Radio. Uh, for this particular segment, and running from our last segment, we went so fast to have fin- finish have a chance to tell you that they played that music on this day in history because Carl, Carl Cherney died in 18, uh, was, was, who died on this day in 1857. In 1957, I need to say, composed over a thousand pieces, uh, and uh, his students were people like Franz Liszt, Heller, Bernstein, and he himself is a student of Beethoven. So I thought we should uh, play that on this day. But we are now about to talk with Jamie Jamie Hinn, who is 30, uh, the 350.org co-founder and and uh, strategy and communications director. And Jamie, welcome. Good to have you with us. Good to be with you. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at steinershow at gmail.com. Tweet me at Mark Steiner. And I read that when I read this article by Clinton Callahan, uh, will any humans uh, become will, will any humans become post-carbon? Um, and talking about the dangers of methane, which is something we never talk about, though I've read some articles about it before. And I think that it gets left out of this discussion about what's happening to our Earth all the time. And I'll let you kind of talk a bit about what that means. Sure. So, you know, methane emissions are a serious problem when it comes to climate change, and, and there's a number of reasons why. Uh, first, methane is a far more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Over a 100-year period when methane is in the atmosphere, it's about 20 times more powerful than CO2. Um, and it's very difficult to regulate. Uh, most of our methane emissions come from uh, agriculture, large-scale agriculture and farming, um, as well as industrial sources. One of the ways that we've seen a real increase in methane and something that's really worrying scientists and advocates across the United States is in association with fracking, which has been exploding across the country and around the world. Um, A series of studies uh, that are still really coming out over the last couple of months and even in the coming weeks have shown that the methane leakage rates from these fracking sites, whether it's actually at the wellhead or as a part of the transfer, is much higher than previously expected, uh, anywhere to up to a thousand times higher than the EPA uh, originally thought. So there's serious concerns that while we may be beginning to grapple with addressing carbon dioxide emissions from places like coal-fired power plants, we're maybe not doing enough to handle something like methane, which is a really powerful short-term forcing when it comes to climate change. Now, I, I, you know, when I read articles like this, uh, I, am, I, I am, hate being a person who sounds like the sky is falling, the sky is falling, because people just turn away and go, oh, no, not another disaster story about the climate. But, but when I've read this before uh, about what could happen, and we talk, he goes back to talk about what happened 250 million years ago, 50 million years ago when the, in the Permian Age, when 90% of all species um, uh, went extinct because of the, sh- the shifts in the earth that released all this methane and killed uh, living species in the earth. It took 10 million years for species to come back and for, it to, to, for, for life to come back. Um, but what he's positing here, and that's what I want to talk about, is that, that the global warming, the climate change, is affecting not just the heat in the atmosphere. The biggest issue is the heat in the oceans being heated up, melting the Arctic ice cap, melting the, uh, the, 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 the permafrost in, in, uh, in Siberia, which if it does release, as he's arguing it will, a uh, mass of methane, that there could be a massive die-off. No, how, is that alarmist? Is that real? What? Well, I think that 
you know, the, the problem with climate change is that it really isn't just one effect. I mean, we are tinkering with the ultimate of complex systems, um, and therefore it's very difficult to predict exactly what the impacts are going to be. What we've seen over the last number of years, uh, including in this most recent omnibus intergovernmental panel on climate change report that came out earlier this year, is a real concern that we're beginning to reach uh, climate tipping points. These would be points where we trigger natural systems that make uh, runaway climate change practically inevitable, uh, that we really lose any ability to deal with the crisis. And methane coming from either the permafrost or other regions is one of those tipping points that scientists are really concerned about. Um, so, you know, I'm I think that articles that are saying it's inevitable, articles that are saying this is definitely going to happen, probably are overstating the case. I think we're still getting that information in. Um, but needless to say, you know, the risk is very much there. And scientists are increasingly concerned that we're heading towards those tipping points and we're not going to be able to know exactly when we pass them. Um, you know, it's really disturbing. Uh, earlier, a few months ago, to see news about the West Antarctic ice sheet, uh, which would raise sea level rise far beyond current estimates, uh, was basically in, in collapse. Uh, there might be nothing we can do to really hold that back. Um, so, yes, uh, <laughs> the short answer is we should be very concerned. Um, we should be taking immediate action. Uh, I wouldn't say that the apocalypse is just around the corner, um, <laughs> but there are severe impacts that are not only happening today, but headed our way over the coming years if we don't take action, uh, which is why we really do need to begin to see uh, real political change and the type of movement that can push for that change uh, here in this country and around the world. I get, he was arguing in this piece that, that there, with 2,200 gigatons of methane frozen on the suburban uh, Siberian tundra, that that release itself could, could, could be disastrous for Earth by the year 2050. But you're saying if that was released, it could be disastrous, but we don't know enough. Yeah, I think we need more research. And I mean, that that's something that should be funded, should be a top priority, should be an initiative that's really being led here in the United States and around the world. I mean, there just isn't enough funding going into really studying the types of changes that are going on on this planet. It, that's one of the reasons why we need a really strong public advocacy around these issues. We need to be lifting scientists up as people who we're going to be relying on to make it through the 21st century instead of, you know, attacking them in the media and pushing them to the sidelines. Um, this is an age where we need our, our physicists and our climatologists and our doctors out there front and center helping guide us through what will be a very difficult period. Um, and I think that that needs more public support and, and needs more serious study. Um, you know, right now we're barely keeping up with studying the impacts of what fracking and other new unconventional sources of energy are doing. Um, in an era of climate change, we should be exercising more of a precautionary principle that we shouldn't be adding in new dangerous forms of energy when every sign points towards the immediate need to be moving towards renewables and, and other climate solutions. Now, uh, let, me, let me go there for a minute, what you just said. I'm, 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 I'm curious where you think this may go, because we have seen um, the, the demonstrations that your organization has been deeply involved in uh, to stop the pipeline coming from Canada, uh, Exxon Pipeline coming from Canada and to America and through it. Uh, and it seems to have stalled it for a period of time, if not permanently. But it's beyond that. And I'm curious what, what steps you think have to be taken. We live in a country now that has become the largest gas exporting country in the world, um, we, which is one of the things that's fueling this kind of um, 
uh, fracking boom and, 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 and getting oil in the, in the most dangerous places. I was with people over the weekend who are real experts in battery technology and, 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 uh, and trying to develop alternative uh, ways of using energy in a, in a, in, and through batteries and solar and the rest. And they're saying we could be years and years away from, from, from getting this technology in place where it is affordable. I mean, so where's, how do we wrestle with that? Well, it's a good question. And I think maybe it's, you know, the ultimate question for our age. You know, here's the way that I see it. A lot of new technology is coming online. And even today, you know, solar power is cost competitive with coal in many parts of the country and around the world. So the technology is there. It is going to be extremely difficult to transition our economy and the world economy towards completely renewable energy. But it's certainly doable if we have the right political will. So the job at hand right now really is pushing the political system and finding ways that we can help open the door for all of these technologies to really come into play. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in New York City right now. We're 350 along with 400-plus partner organizations are working together to try and organize the largest march for climate action in world history this September. Uh, we're going to be doing it September 21st, which is a couple days before world leaders come to New York for a UN climate summit. Um, and our goal is really to put a couple hundred thousand people in the streets of New York, a city which knows the impacts of climate change firsthand, uh, and really push for immediate action. We haven't seen the type of movement that we need that can really push the system uh, to, to handle this crisis and take serious action. We've seen the beginnings of it in fights against the Keystone XL pipeline, in this incredible fossil fuel divestment movement, which has spread across the country. There's real energy and potential there. But I think until we can really come out in the streets, as social movements have done uh, in you know years Years in the past, uh, we're not going to see the type of action that we need. So you know, we're really encouraging people, now is the time to get off the sidelines. Um, you know, we often say that we're running out of time, but we really are running out of time, um, and we need to see the type of bold action. So there's more information out at peoplesclimatemarch.org, but that September 21st date in New York really is the time to kind of take a stand and see if we can begin to tilt the needle in the right direction. I mean, as we conclude this, I think that just two things very quickly. I mean, one is we start this conversation because of the article that was written uh, in Truth Out, this op-ed on, on, on the, the potential release of methane uh, killing all life on this planet. And as, as I said, it was very alarmist, but there's a lot of stuff you know, I know that's very real and what happens if methane is released and how it's, a, it's, a, it's the toughest thing to deal with even more than just carbon dioxide and in the, in the kind of changing of our climate. So I'm curious when you talk about actions that have to be taken, what is 350.org saying about what has to happen? I mean, just literally, well, I, what does it mean? Yeah. Well, we probably don't have enough time to run through all the different no, things. No, no, I know that. But, just, but, but, what we, but what we really need is action across the board. And, and that's really the answer here. There is no silver bullet when it comes to climate change. We really need a system-wide response to deal with this crisis and begin to look through the lens of climate action at all the different pieces of what our government and what we can be doing at the local level. So that extends from agriculture and the incredible work that's going on around local foods and organic gardens and rethinking the food system uh, to energy and, and the work that's being done to shut down coal-fired power plants and replace them with distributed solar. The answer isn't one policy or one technology or one invention. It's continual engagement with this issue and really mobilizing not only governments, but all of civil society and business to begin thinking about how we take this challenge on. Um, that's a daunting task, but it should be an inspiring task as well. You know, climate change is an opportunity to rethink 
the way that we run our economy and to start tackling issues far beyond the environment, but looking at social justice and economic inequality. Um, this is a big opportunity, uh, a wake-up call, if you will, to say we really need to begin looking at the way we run our economies and run our societies in a different way. Um, so that's a challenge that I think we all need to be engaged in. Um, now, that said, there are specific things like shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline or implementing a global climate treaty that would really help. Um, so we're going to keep pushing for those in, in active campaigns in the months ahead. Well, Jamie Henn, thank you for joining us again. It's always good to have folks on 350.org on this program. Jamie Henn is the co-founder and strategy and communications director for 350.org. And as we will approach this September 21st date, we will continue talking to 350.org. And, Jamie, we welcome you to have you back and the rest of you back to kind of push what's happening on September 21st and uh, get a strong Maryland contingent up there with you. You bet. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks a lot, Jamie. We're going to take a brief break. And when we return, we're going to be talking about bees, what's happened to them, What's going on? Stay with us. This is Mark Steiner, and welcome back to the Mark Steiner Show and to Soundbites. We are about to ha- have a conversation with Mimi Thomas. Uh, Mimi Thomas is director of Baltimore Honey, a nonprofit organization that works to maximize local honeybee pollination coverage for local food security, and is maker of Bee More Honey brand brand of raw micro micro local honey. I got that all out. Welcome, Mimi. Good to have <laughs> Good you with morning, us. Good morning, Mark. And there are a lot of you out there who are gardeners and uh, love your flowers and vegetables you are growing across the city and community. Join us here at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at steinershowgmail.com uh, with your thoughts and questions uh, uh, as you hear this conversation unfold. You know, we, this, it's interesting you're on the show today. We've been having this conversation in our home um, over the last couple of weeks because of a neighbor who was saying that she was wondering what happened to the bees in her garden. They're just not there. Where are they? And realizing she had bought flowers, and the people bought flowers and uh, and vegetables and planted them, uh, and they were from places like Lowe's and other places that are that that we think are kind of organic plants, but they're being sprayed. So talk a bit about what is going on that we're not seeing. So it's a really unfortunate situation because everyone probably who's out there in your audience is probably aware of the issues that honeybees are faced environmentally with the colony collapse disorder. So, and um, what happens is honeybees are exposed to a variety of, of pesticides and um, chemicals that homeowners unknowingly place on their lawns because the TV shows tell them it's this time of the year, it's time to treat your lawns with in you know, an insecticide or a herbicide or a fungicide. Um, But in addition to the lawns, um, people are aware of the flight of the honeybees, you know, disappearing from uh, our planet. So they themselves have taken on, whether they're beekeepers or not, to 
support Honeybee Health by going to these home um, hardware stores and improvement stores and buying what's been labeled as bee-friendly plants. Well, what's unfortunate is, are these bee-friendly plants that, let's just say, Home Depot and Lowe's and Target and BJ's, all of these, you know, variety of big box stores provide for their customers um, at a reasonable price, uh, they come from nurseries, plant nurseries. And these plant nurseries, their one main important thing that they are concerned about is getting pretty plants out to the customers, which are these big box stores for their customers to purchase. The soils that are in these little containers are just drenched with fungicides and insecticides and pesticides. In particularly, the um, type which is called neonicotinoids. And there's a variety of those neonicotinoids um, that are either uh, placed in the soil as a drenched or placed on the soil as granular to be slow released or and or applied topically to the plant itself, the foliage and the stems. Well, any of those types of neonicotinoids in that form um, are absorbed by the plant systemic system. They're called systemic insecticides, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. And the entire plant takes up those chemicals, whether it's in the soil or applied directly on the plant, through its vascular system. And the vascular system admits it through the entire plant, the stems, the leaves, the flowers, the petals, the pollen, the nectar that the plant produces. It's not only affecting honeybees, but it's all pollinators that touch those um, treated plants. So these homeowners are spending their hard-earned money to support colony collapse disorder for honeybee health, to provide food for them, the nectar and the pollen. Needless to say, they're themselves, with their hard-earned money, poisoning the honeybees because of the systemic insecticides and neonicotinoids um, are just drenched. 51% of the samples that were taken by friendsofbees.org did a study um, last year to, in 2013 showed that 51% of the samples that came back from all these big box stores were drenched with higher dosage of neonicotinoids than what you would find in agriculture crops like corn, soy. They had so much more. And so when you are in an urban environment, and a lot of these even um, small gardening shops, um, when all these people go out and support honeybees and buy their plants and they're labeled bee-friendly, or because of their species, they're supposed to be bee-friendly, there in an urban environment, it becomes a toxic location for honeybees. So, I mean, just uh, reading for a piece of this report, and let me get that mic a little bit in front of your mouth sure. there so you're right in it. There you go. Good, 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 yeah. good, good. So, so um, in the report itself, it, just, it says that 51% of the plants that were tested contained neonicotinoid residues. The chance of purchasing a plant contaminated with neonicotinoids is high. Many home gardens have likely become a source of exposure mm -hmm. for bees. And I think, because and, people are just 
A, planting things because they love the bees and they right. love the butterflies and want to see them. And for the beauty in their gardens, yeah. whether it's a little backdoor garden in the city or a larger garden somewhere else, right. people want that. So right. this some people only, don't, don't even know what's happening. No. They don't know what they're doing. They think it's a positive thing because we're Correct. beautifying our world and planting things in the soil. Your hands are in the dirt. You feel good about being Correct. out there. But the opposite Toxic. is happening. Toxic dump it becomes. And it's not just beautiful plants. It's also vegetables and fruits. And not just the small, you know, um, uh, soft stem plants, but it's also the fruit trees that are doused with the fungicides um, and insecticides, as well as the nut-bearing trees, and as well as, um, like, say, a maple tree or, you know, any other type of... But don't businesses do this in part because for them to make a profit selling their plants, the plants have to survive. Well, plants can survive right. even without the chemicals. You can use beneficial plant, uh, uh, beneficial insects, which is integrated pest management, in order to raise plants healthy. You can use seeds that are not coated with these neonicotinoids. Um, so they they prosper just as well. It's a more efficient, you know, quick way of getting things out the door. And that's what it comes down and for their longevity. The other thing that's a real concern is, is once that plant gets put in your garden, that soil and those neonicotinoids leach into your pristine soil that you've prepped the garden with. And they stay in the soil for uh, up to 15 years, depending on what type, from 5 to 15 years. So... You know, you're not just bringing in plants and then, oh, realizing they came from a specific um, garden uh, shop and then removing them. You've now contaminated your soil for 5 to 15 years with those plants. So you really have to be careful, not only the plants themselves, but also the seeds. You know, the soils need to be organic matter. The seed needs to be an organic seed. And the plant the way that the plant was grown and managed needs to be done organically. And there's ways to do it. There are uh, non-toxic ways using insecticidal soaps, um, using beneficial plants that complement with one another, companion planting. Um, there's insects um, that you can purchase, ladybugs, um, prey mantises, that you can populate your gardens in order to make sure that uh, uh, the plants stay viable and healthy without interfering. So it, I, I want to I uh, take a break here for a moment, but I, I want to focus on a couple of things when we come back. And one of them, many people listen to the conversation would say, okay, look, we have all these huge issues we're facing in our life, in our world, in this city, in these communities. Uh, and so why should we care about plants and these bees when we're worrying about kids dying in the street. So I, I want to talk a bit about what you, how you respond to that. So let's talk about where the, what this really means, sure. what this bee uh, de- depopulation means. 410-319-8888. You join us here. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner here on the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites, and we're here with Mimi Thomas, who's director of Baltimore Honey, a nonprofit organization that works to maximize local honeybee pollination coverage for local food security and make her a Be More Honey brand, raw micro-local honey. 410-319-8888 is the number here. Uh, and your thoughts on, on this. This is a huge issue, really, when you think about what's happening to our bees and what's being sold to us in these box stores. You know, the place is that two-thirds of our food crops – Things that we eat as human beings every day require bees and other pollinators to successfully produce that crop. And if we lose our bees, we lose our food, and this is not a minor issue. You were telling me the story about what happened to the, to the bees in, in, in was it Mount Washington. Let's talk a bit about that. Her, her mic has got to go up. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So Baltimore Honey, we've been uh, a nonprofit organization for six years. And for the first time in six years, we we have had two honeybee colonies, um, one at a hive host location and the other one at a hive steward's um, home, um, recently passed away, expired. And it wasn't a immediate um, exposure uh, death, like an immediate death of the colony. It was a sublethal effect where it slowly killed the colony until a to the point where there was no more honeybee foragers in the hive in order to take care of the queen and the brood, the babies. So uh, being exposed to these neonicotinoids with one individual uh, exposure doesn't directly kill them. It's the sublethal compounding exposure that um, eventually ends in their demise. So two colonies in Mount Washington alone. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there in the Mount Washington area. So please be vigilant about looking at the label and insisting from your local um, nurseries where you buy your plants, as well as these big box stores, to please, please, please do not buy plants that you're going to be purchasing or seeds that have neonicotinoid treatments on them. Um, we have a, a question here from Valerie who writes in, is it only from big box stores? Do they test smaller nurseries? It was small nurseries, random nurseries that were tested as well. It's these smaller, it's not the stores themselves, it's the actual um, nursery growers of these plants, these large farms, so to say, that grow the plants, whether they're vegetables, flowers, Trees, fruits, uh, they treat their plants in order to make them thrive, in order to sell the plants to these big box stores to make money. So what can people do? Well, people can be vigilant. They can start talking to their local retailers and insisting that they're not going to buy from them if if the plants that they're getting are not labeled bee-friendly with no insecticidal um uh, treatments on them. And the other thing is, is they can insist that they um, not uh, not purchase these uh, treatments for their lawns and gardens that are fungicides, insecticides, and herbicides. So they themselves, because they're spending the money, have a big say in supporting honeybee health. So is there something that can be done in a large way, in a policy way to address this? Yeah, there's there's you can start at the city local level by going at or writing letters to your city representatives and telling them to support 
the Pollinator Act. Um, that, What's the uh, Pollinator Act? It's a it's a the American Pollinator Act is a bill that's in session where they are telling you know all the retailers that they have to label the plants that are truly bee friendly. They cannot let the and non treat it with neonicotinoids. So something like GMO labeling. Label, exactly. L- label plants. A bill that says you have to label the plant people are going to buy. Exactly. Flower or vegetable. Exactly. That says there are no neonicotinoids and other things in this plant or in this earth that we're selling to you as a breed-friendly product or as a vegetable to eat. Correct. Correct. And you can talk to your local representative to get their entire city or their entire county neonicotinoid-free bill placed legislations. Um, uh, Minnesota did it. Oregon did it. Where Oregon is completely free of neonicotinoids. So you can... Completely free. Completely free. Yep. And Minnesota is... Minnesota is label requirement. So we only have a couple minutes left in the segment. Let me go quickly to the phones here. 410-319-8888. And Linda, you're on the air. Linda, welcome. You're on the air. Linda? Hi. You're on the air. Yes, Hi, you Linda. can. Hi. I've just been collecting a lot of information myself because I was going to try to see if I could get some people in the city gov- um, uh, city um, council as well as state government to pass some legislation banning certain herbicides and pesticides. Um, and um, um, I'd be happy to work with, you know, whoever is going to do this. So um, that would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's, let's get in touch. <laughs> well, let's do this before you hang up. Uh, I'll get the one of the producers will pick up the line and get your email and telephone number, and we'll get you all in touch. Great, thank you. And we'll be pursuing this more here on the Steiner Show. I think the um, uh, the, the whole idea uh, of there is a policy. There are policy measures we can take if Oregon can grow. If Oregon can grow plants, grow vegetables, grow flowers, and keep their bees alive. Maryland can do the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and demand with your dollar that these box stores and also your local gardening shops to not only you know start labeling their plants that are truly neonicotinoid free, but also to get rid of off the shelves these bottles and other containers that have neonicotinoids on them or at least label them as be unfriendly. And remember, if we kill our bees, we kill our food. Two-thirds of all the food we consume are pollinated by bees. Two-thirds of, of all the food we consume. So Mimi Thomas, director of Be More Honey, thank you so much for being with thank us. Thank you so much, Mark, and thank you. And we'll connect on this on our website and uh, reminding you that we're going to close out our show with a look at Baltimore's Park Heights Farmer's Market, which is open every Wednesday at the corner of Belvedere and Park Heights Avenues from 9 to 2 p.m. We're going to hear from Sasha Jones, food justice consultant with the Park Heights Community Health Alliance and manager of Afia Community Teaching Garden in Park Heights. Mia Loving is a community organizer entrepreneur, mother and wife, and Willie Flowers, executive director of the Park Heights Community Health Alliance. They're building gardens there, not to put food to restaurants, but to give food to the people. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. You're listening to the Mark Steiner Show here. And to Soundbites, our weekly look at our 
food system, environment, and uh, the future of food in America. We begin this conversation looking at some amazing things happening in our own community here of Park Heights. There are not very many uh, communities in, in the nation in uh, working-class communities that are food deserts where people are taking the initiative in their own hands, and we're going to talk about that today. Sasha Jones is in the house. She's a food and justice consultant for the Park Heights Community Health Alliance, also manages the Afia Community Teaching Garden in Park Heights. Good to see you again, Sasha. Welcome. Thank you. Willie Flowers is here. He is the executive director of the Park Heights Community Health Alliance, uh, and always good to see Willie Flowers in the house. Good to see you, Willie. Good morning. And Mia Loving is back with us. She's a vendor at the Park Heights Farmer's Market. And good to see you again, Mia. Thank you for having me. I thought you were bringing the baby with you. I wanted to see the baby. <laughs> and you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at steinershow at gmail.com. Log on to our Facebook pages. Tweet me at Mark Steiner, 410-319-8888. So let's talk. Sasha, let me start with you because I was – when I met you the, the other weekend, we were talking when Willie Flowers was on our Good Food Gathering panel and he was uh, – that we had last week, uh, two weeks ago, whenever that was. I was really fascinated by the fact that you – what your job is, is working in this community garden and creating a CSA in Park Heights, which is not something we often hear about. Talk a bit about what's going on. So um, we are actually the first and only CSA um, <laughs> in Park Heights, and it has been a really um, lovely and kind of eye-opening experience um, doing that. So the garden itself has been around for about five years. Um, and so this is the first year that we've actually formalized it into a CSA and have been doing a lot of education in the community, just kind of what a CSA is. Um, and people are just astounded that they can pay, you know, in one lump sum and actually get food every week. And it's coming directly from their neighborhood. They can come. They L- can. It's coming, let me stop for a minute. So yeah. Explain how this works. It's coming from the neighborhood? What do you mean it's coming yes. from the neighborhood? So the Afia Community Teaching Garden, which um, we manage um, also, is we grow all the food there. So right now we're about a quarter to a, a half acre of production. And from that, we're able to feed about 35 families um, that are members of our CSA. And so... It's, you know, it's really remarkable and kind of one of a kind. And, you know, the neighbors, they walk by, they see us, they tell us like, hey, looking good. You know, so (laughs) we get get, um, a lot of uh, opportunities for just kind of building community and just having these conversations. Um, And then the people, our members are able to come and it's a market style CSA. So we don't box it for them. They come, we get to talk to them. Um, They pick what they want out of the options that they um, that we have there from what we've grown. And it's it's just it's love. It's you know, I think any time that you're sharing food with someone, it's it opens up the door to share that love and to share that uh just kind of yourself with people. <clears throat> and that's just what we've been seeing in Park Heights. So I see so many smiles and one of our pickup days is at the farmers market, um, that we manage as well. And so even people who are not members of our CSA are super excited about it. Um they get they love, you know, where those collars come from or <laughs> how much of those onions, you know, like we get people interested in the food that we're growing and the work that we're doing. And I can't ask for a better experience. So and, and Willie Flowers, is this going on? Uh, is there any other community in Baltimore that people call, quote unquote, inner city communities, that were poor working class black communities and working class black communities where this kind of CSA and farmers markets are taking place? It sounds like a pretty unique thing that you're trying in Park Heights. Well, maybe not. It wasn't happening in Park Heights six years ago, and that's kind of what we're, I guess, proud of, the fact that there was not a system. It's clearly a food desert, all of the other challenges. And in, in our situation, we just wanted to do, create a solution, and the solution was to combine our farmer's market with our 
community garden and then the CSA. And we just got lucky enough to get someone who was very excited about doing food, tackling the issues, and um, Sasha's it. What she didn't tell you is that we just we also combine um, those layers, the farmer's market with the CSA, with the community garden, and we're now we're doing a summer food program to create access to kids during the summer um, to have food. Because hmm. there's a clear, it, it, not only when you say food desert, it speaks to insecurity about food, and we feel like we're, you know, have a model to resolve some of it. And, and Mia, I'm, I'm really interested. You, uh, I know you're deeply involved in this, but as a mother and a community member, I mean, what, what talk a bit about what this means for you and why you think it's so important? Because as a young mother, you also represent, in some ways, uh, some of represent hundreds of other young mothers that could possibly be in this. Yeah, I mean, I was very proud to see it uh, come to fruition and see uh, all the hard work that was put in, actually. Because anybody that's a community organizer knows that it's a very difficult task to get people involved, to keep organized, and um, to see it from start to finish. And my personal story, last year I left my job, took a leap of faith, (laughs) and decided (laughs) to kind of go full-time, you know, as a mother, but also, you know, starting my own business opportunities. And so that can be up and down, you know what I mean? And food, we realized, was a growing bill because I like to eat healthily. I like to, you know. And so on one hand, you have, like, food you don't know where it's coming from. On the other hand, you have overpriced produce. And it was just right when the CSA finally, you know, went. It was at a point where we were like, how are we going to manage this bill? Especially working from home, we consume a lot more than maybe the the average two people also. Um, and so this was a, a real sustainable solution for not only a family like mine, but families in general that can pay a small fee, come weekly for freshly grown. I know where this food is coming from. I know how it was made. I know what's on it. Um, and it, it's just a it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful opportunity. And I'm I'm looking forward to just seeing it grow and seeing more people take advantage of it. So I mean so the CSA part we're talking about now and how much is the cost of family to, to So for the full season for the largest share is three hundred dollars. Wow. Um which equals $50 a month, which will feed between three and four people. Um, Mia actually has the half share, which is $25 a month, um, and that is and designed to feed. Over. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. um, and it's designed to feed between one and two people, depending on your vegetable intake, and so I, I, I'm so happy that it's working. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our smallest share, which we have a lot of seniors um, come in, is the it's $15 a month, $75 wow. for the season. Super. I mean, we have the most affordable organic locally grown produce you will find probably in the whole region. (laughs) uh, To me, this is so exciting, the idea that you have organically grown food being grown in the neighborhood of Park Heights, being made available, not given away as some kind of quote-unquote charity, but, 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 but being sold at affordable prices so people can eat healthy. I mean, to me, Willie Flowers, and this is a model if it was expanded out about how we could feed the people of the city. I agree. And um, as she mentioned earlier, it's all about love. And um, that's something we don't promote. And I think that if you could spread love through food, you, you, you we're going to win, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, we're um, going to continue to face the challenges that we face without solutions because you're confused about what the solution is. But I um 
I, I do think it's a model, and that's kind of how we designed it. Um, she did not mention that even if people don't have the resources t- to pay, we also have what we call the sweat equity right. CSA, that um, if you work. Five and, hours a week. Right. And you learn it. So you're working, but you're learning how to garden. So, I mean, we're basically paying you. <laughs> you know? And they take SNAP. Uh, paying you to eat while it works, right? <laughs> yes. okay. Yeah, and we take, we take SNAP, too. So we take labor. Okay. I tell people we take all forms of payment except for smiles and giggles, though we do like those. <laughs> we, love, we love smiles and giggles. So when you say SNAP, so can, can parents join the CSA through SNAP or they have to, that's a weekly thing? So they would still um, enroll through us, but basically, um, and a lot of our senior members do pay with SNAP, and it works for them because a lot of them only have $16 a month on their SNAP card. Like, some people get oh. very little benefits. So this is oh, a way wow. for them to right. use their benefits $16 to get. $16 a month, I know. Can you imagine that's that? Crazy. That's all someone would get, but it's true. Um, but you would, you know, just call our office and just let us know when your benefits come on your card, and we'll charge it then. Typically, payments are due the second Wednesday of every month. So we're actually doing open enrollment tomorrow um, at the farmer's market um, if anyone is interested in joining the CSA. So th- that, let me let me kind of just straighten things out for people listening to this. That, mm-hmm. that, so I want to get the phone number out there so people can know how to get in touch with you all. But So there's a, there's a CSA and a farmer's market. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? So the farmer's market is something different. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Separate. But part of what we call our Urban Oasis Project, which delivers all the um, items I mentioned before. So the farmer's market is open to anybody who wants to come uh, to Pimlico Racetrack, which is where right. it's held, to buy food once a week. It's on Wednesdays, right? Yes, Wednesdays. 9.30 to 2.30. So that's, that's – that's, okay. So that's, that's a very different thing than a CSA. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, I, I'm wondering, Mia, you know, as we think, talk about this, and I know you think about these things. I mean, what your vision is and what all your visions are, but starting with you, about what this could mean. For the large community, I mean, I'm really because I'm really fascinated by the idea of how much vacant land exists in the city of Baltimore, right? And what we could be creatively doing with it. Um, like I said, it, it's it it speaks to so many things for the community. A lot of people are trying to figure out how they're going to eat. A lot of people are trying to figure out how they're going to make money, how they're going to sustain themselves, and what they're working on here in Park Heights addresses these multiple issues. You have a space where um, you can get affordable, fresh food, but you also have a space where you can possibly vend. You can create something um, and and bring that to market and, and feed your your particular thing. And I, I've been organizing and doing stuff, uh, and just, of course, I'm just raised here, and I've run into a lot of um, political issues or uh, race and class barriers that exist that make it very difficult for certain people to um, to to do certain things. And so when you have an uh, organization that is of the community, that's extremely um, focused on the people and want the best for the people and create those opportunities for that, that's just not like... Uh, like you said, just not, not just charity or giving handouts or just like eat this and be quiet and, and stop right. trying to, <laughs> but really trying to mobilize to say we really do want better for ourselves and, and, and for then those um, real, th- you know, the real opportunity, it, it becomes a, it's a seed that a tree is being planted from, you know, that that's going to grow great and and be able to feed even more people and and things and so that's why I said I'm excited about it growing and and giving more opportunities to people like myself who um 
took those leaps. I, mean, I can see how this, I mean, to me, this is a, I mean, I'm excited about what you're doing in Park Heights. I mean, really excited about it. Um, uh, because it's a turnaround that's coming, will it flowers from the community out and not something imposed from outside to. Right. And, I, and it speaks to community development. It speaks to consumerism because you're going to save money, at least during the growing season. And we have an answer to that because um, a part of what we do overall is teach you how to store um, your food throughout the winter. But um, so that's kind of what's missing when you talk about uh, the local food movement. There is a, uh, a savings connected with it, and you can do something else with your money that you do save. No, and I th- and I think that's right, exactly right. And I think that's an important piece of this. And and Sasha, I mean, you, I mean, you are a farmer, right? Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it used to be a bad word back yeah, in the day. I know. Farmer, and right? people see me like, <laughs> really? Like you're right, a I, I, um, And I'm from I'm from Alabama, and I left I left Alabama <laughs> to get away from farming. But she she wants to go back. <laughs> and back in the day, and she's not somebody. telling you um, all that she's doing. Well, I want to hear about it, a, right? Yeah, so she can explain yeah, tell me what more she's involved with overall. Okay, um, so yes, I am a burgeoning <laughs> farmer, and it's it's interesting to me that that's now a part of my identity. But not only do I manage the the, the FIA Community Teaching Garden, which is at our site in Park Heights, but I am a member of the Beginner Farmer Trainer Program. Um, and I have a mentor farm that I work on once a week as well, which is in Upper Marlboro. And so I'm getting a rural farming experience compounded with uh, urban farming experience. And the challenges. So you're, you're over the Casa of Young yes, Farmer Yes, yes, the Future, um, Future Harvest Casa Future program. Harvest Casa, right. Yes, right. and I also did the Master Gardener class, so I'm part of that community as is well. Is that Larry so, Close? Yep. Yes. So uh-huh. Larry right. Close, he's, right. he is a severe ally. But um, so yeah, I'm a master gardener and a and a farmer, a BFT peer. Um, and so that's mostly what I do with my day. So I love, I, I, I joke that I get to have all the food jobs at once. So I'm a farmer. <laughs> I'm a farmer. I'm a, a, I organize a CSA, I, a community organizer, a farmer's market. Um, and then also, and sometimes on my hobby job, I cater too. So I do, I do, I do it all. Um, and, I, and I love it. There's no better experience than watching something grow. Not only, you know, from the community organizing standpoint, it's beautiful to watch people come together. But you get that same experience watching some peas come out of the ground. You know, like you put wow. them in and a few days later and it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, my peas are peaking. Um, <laughs> and so the if you look through my phone, you know, most people have selfies, but I have several pictures of cabbages and collards <laughs> and, um, and beans. And, and I love it. I couldn't ask for anything. So uh, the two things we have to do very quickly in the, in the few minutes we have left in this particular segment, and we're looking forward to having you all back and to coming to Park Heights to do a story with you out there in the community during the CSA and, and the farmer's market and just in the garden itself to kind of talk more about this and bring the sound back to our listeners. But very quickly, how do people get in touch? I want to get that out here and the people know how to f- find you all. Okay, so uh, we're located at 4151 Park Heights Avenue, which is Park Heights and Quantico. Our phone number is 410-542-8190. Um, and you can email me at sjones at org, Or you can come meet us at the uh, Park Heights Community Farmers Market on Wednesdays from 930 to 2.30. Um, and we'll be at the info table. And we will have that information on our website and, and as, as well. And I, and I think this is so important to have you maybe back and, and have these 
larger conversations with other people in the communities to talk about what this model means, Willie Flowers, because, I mean, I really do think we're looking at something as, as, as the kernel of something very revolutionary for our, for our city. Well, I, I, don't, I don't think it's revolutionary. <laughs> I, think I mean that in a positive sense. Right. Well, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's been done before. We just stopped doing it. Okay, and, uh, but not in a long time on the sound, right? Yeah, right, right, I, right. I, you know, I think the comfort of it needs to return. I think it it, ha- it is returning because everybody we um, participate with, most of them go home and try to grow something. So um, I think it's going to pick up, you know, but I definitely want to tackle all the vacant spaces because I certainly believe if you can grow weeds, um, you can grow tomatoes. and um, And I would love to see more. Uh, vegetable gardens and weed gardens. Yes. Well, one question for you, just personally. So, are you farming again after running away from it in Alabama? <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm back. You say you're I'm back. back. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm way back. Um, interestingly, on the day of the tobacco, uh, not tobacco settlement, but the um, the Black Farmers Settlement, I was at the Black Farmers and Urban Gardeners Conference, where I learned more about the history of. Um, Department of Agriculture and their disenfranchisement of black farmers and people um, during that period, which is consistent with uh, Social Security. And um, right. so all of that is important. And that conversation is happening now with Obamacare, but the reality about Social Security was that when they implemented the law, um, they didn't allow um, farmers or farm hands and um, domestic workers to be a part of and guess who that affected? Exactly. <laughs> Sixty or seventy percent. Right. So right, um right. so consistent with that type of uh system, the Department of Agriculture did the same thing during the same period of time. So um I learned a lot about that and it inspired me to to jump back in. Well, I think this is truly exciting and we look forward to kind of really following this as a uh, ongoing living story here on Sound Bites and the Mark Steiner show and coming to visit and help other communities understand how this can be and how to develop it in our community. I think we have a, what you're doing is really amazing and really one of the most important projects I think we've had in the ground in our communities in a long time. And I'm just really um, I'm wildly taken by this. And Willie Flowers is the Executive Director of the Park Hayes Community Health Alliance. Always good to see you. Thank you so much for coming Thank in today. Thank you for uh, doing this. Uh, it means a lot to us as well. Sasha Jones, great to see you again. Food Justice Consultant for the Park Heights Community Health Alliance also manages the Afia Community Teaching Garden in Park Heights and Mia Loving, vendor at the Park Heights uh, Farmer's Market. Good to have all three of you with us. Thank you. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are a production of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Mark Gunnery and Stephanie Mavronis. Our engineer at WEAA is Andre Melton. To hear this show again, podcast any of our past shows, and find out information from the interviews we are doing on this program, please visit us on the web at steinershow.org. You can also listen to and download our podcasts on iTunes. And for Public Radio, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.